How do you make a vacation last? How do you hold on to the joy, the clarity, the calm? Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool white sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. You won't just feel great. You'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. You are listening to As a Woman, Episode 100, How It Started. Today I'm talking about my journey in medicine how I started this podcast, and answering some of your top questions. Welcome to As a Woman, the podcast hosted by fertility physician, Dr. Natalie Crawford, to educate and empower women. Each week, learn about your health, your fertility, and how they relate to your true self. Become a part of the community, fostering collaboration over competition, while learning how to authentically find your voice and amplify others as a woman. Hi, friends. Oh my gosh, the podcast has made it to 100 episodes. And I'm starting this out by saying thank you. This episode is being released on Valentine's Day. And that couldn't be more perfect because I love you all so much. I can't even begin to express what you, the collective you, the people who listen to this, who send me comments about how my episodes educated you or empowered you or made you think or made you make a choice, how much that means to me and what joy that brings to my life. We are approaching 1 million downloads, which is mind-blowing to me that 1 million times people have sat there and listened to my voice, maybe while driving or walking or cleaning or working or whatever. That's so, so special to me and what a gift. Thank you guys so much for giving me the best Valentine's gift. This episode is about where it started. I have talked about my journey in medicine on the blog, on Instagram, and in a variety of other episodes, but I get asked questions about it all the time. So I figured to celebrate 100, I would speak more to my journey, lessons I've learned along the way, why I started the podcast, and and then answering some of your top questions. I gave a talk a few weeks ago to a group of medical students at UTMB. So that was my medical school. And it was really impactful to me, one, because I'm so old. But two, it was brought up at the end that all the things I'm doing are a little overwhelming to them. The thought of having kids and having a job and owning a practice and having an Instagram and a YouTube and a podcast. It was just a lot. And what I told them, and I really meant it, When I was at your stage, I didn't do any of these things. I barely got enough sleep. I mean, I didn't. I ate terribly. I didn't work out. I was studying for step one. That was my focus. I was in that zone. Yes, I could have taken better care of myself. And that is probably the number one thing I try to tell younger women in medicine. But you don't become the person you're supposed to be overnight. It's not an easy journey and it's not smooth. Maybe Instagram makes it look smooth. I've tried really hard to be very transparent, 
about the ups and downs, leaving jobs, trying to find my way, feeling burnt out at times. And so I think that that is really important to know that maybe you see somebody else at the end or the middle of their journey and you're way at the beginning and it feels overwhelming. Nothing happens overnight and everything happens by making a little decision in line with where you want to be every single day. You want to be healthier? You have to start making little decisions that way. You want to be a doctor? You have to start prioritizing studying. You want to match into a competitive field? You have to start making yourself competitive. And so figuring out how you can make tiny little decisions. Are you going to get up a little bit earlier? Are you going to meal prep? Are you going to work out? What are you going to prioritize at what time of your life? Those things matter. I was always going to be a doctor. I had no backup plan, zero. I'm not saying that's the right decision for you, but I always wanted to do this job. Although the job that I do now, I didn't even know it existed. My grandfather was a psychiatrist and he was really amazing. He taught, he researched, he wrote. He really loved his job. He was excited to go to work, found a huge personal satisfaction from helping people. And that really was a huge influence on me when I was young. We called him Gaga and there was a ongoing joke in our family with the cousins. We would sit down at the table with him and he would sit at the head of the table and he would ask, what kind of doctor are you going to be? And we would all go around the table and say, it wasn't, what are you going to be when you grow up? It was, what kind of doctor are you going to be? So I was certainly influenced by the OG influencer, my family, Gaga. But I wanted a job that I liked. I wanted to have that same passion. And I did want to help people. And I was drawn towards the science and found the human body really interesting. So I went to college full on. I'm going to medical school. I'm pre-med. And I had not good advisors. And I was told many a times that I wasn't going to get into medical school. I wasn't what a doctor looked like. Many of those things from female advisors, but I took them as the gasoline in my car and I was going to prove those people wrong. So I worked hard. I had a ton of fun in college, so I don't want to act like I didn't because I certainly did. I went to a state school, so I went to Auburn, War Eagle. I got a full scholarship there. So that was very attractive because I viewed my length of education as it's going to be four years of undergrad and four years of medical school. So I didn't want to have to take out loans for both. I know that Auburn's not the most prestigious school, unless some years we're talking about football, but I loved it. I had so much fun, but I knew that meant I had to stand out in other ways. So I worked really hard. I studied in the morning because after classes, I wanted to hang out with my friends and go out and do all those college things. So I would get up in the morning. The morning is when I found myself to be the most productive. I would study in the morning. I would go to class. I would schedule my classes in the morning. That was my most productive time. And figuring that out helped me a lot. I also had a few experiences that really highlighted my application. The most profound was I volunteered in a free clinic in Auburn that was started by an emergency medicine physician. And it was totally free to anybody. You had to make an appointment. There were donated medications. And I worked there for three years. So I started working there my sophomore year for free. Volunteering is a better word. And I started up front filing and doing admin stuff, scheduling appointments, very boring stuff. But I showed up and I worked hard because 
I saw how important this clinic was. And because I kept showing up, they began to trust me more. And then I was able to room patients. Then they taught me how to take vitals. Then they taught me how to draw blood. And I was able to then, by the end of it, be the doctor's right-hand person on the days I would go. I would follow him in the room, essentially scribe for him, draw blood, talk to the patients. And it solidified in me this huge desire that medicine was my calling. He also then wrote me a letter of recommendation, which was very powerful. And having somebody speak on your behalf like that with a body of your work, there's nothing so strong on your application in my mind. And that was brought up in every interview that I went on. So I went on a bunch of interviews. My parents at the time were living in Texas. I had grown up in Georgia, but moved around a lot. And I was in college in Alabama. I actually got into medical school at South Alabama and UAB. They granted me in-state tuition or in-state status to Alabama because my parents had recently moved and I was at my residence in Auburn at our apartment for longer than my parents had been in one place. And I was thrilled. I remember I got my South Alabama acceptance right before Thanksgiving. I remember showing it to Gaga because, you know, this was still paper. The acceptance came in the mail. It wasn't an email. And I remember opening it up from my mailbox at college. I thought it was a no because the envelope was skinny. And you remember everybody taught you back when there were mail things, a thick envelope is good and a skinny one is bad. But I dropped all the mail and I opened it up and I was accepted. And that was a huge minute for me because I was going to be a doctor. That dream, I had worked hard and it was becoming true in some way. And that was this huge weight off of my shoulders. And I remember taking that letter to Gaga and having him see it and being really proud of me. And that was such an exciting time. Also, when I got into UAB, I loved that school, but I hated being far from my parents. So my sister was in college in Birmingham and I was at Auburn and our parents at the time were in Austin. And so they were not close. That was not fun. And driving across the country was not fun. And so since they were residing in Texas, I was a Texas resident also. So I applied to all the Texas schools. Texas did a match. I guess they still do a match. So you rank them all and then you wait to find out which one you get into. UTMB, where I went, was not my first choice, but it is where I got into. And I decided to go there mostly to be closer to my family, but also because I had been dating a Texas boy named Jason for about eight months at the time of that decision. And he was in pharmacy school at UT and he had three years left. So if our relationship was going to go anywhere, I knew that we either had three more years of being states apart or I could try to come closer. So Galveston is about three and a half to four hours away and I decided to do it. So I was going to medical school either way. I went to Galveston, knew nobody, didn't know a soul because I did not come from a Texas college with a robust pre-med program and everybody went to Texas schools. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Ritual. Did you know that 97% of women aged 19 to 50 are not getting enough vitamin D from their diet? Ritual's Essential for Women 18 and Plus was shown to increase vitamin D levels by 43% in a clinical study. I love Ritual and I love taking their Essential for Women 18 Plus every single day. One reason I love it is that it's gentle on an empty stomach and it has a minty essence. So every bottle feels refreshing and is actually enjoyable. It's also clinically backed multivitamin with high quality and traceable key ingredients. And they have industry leading sustainability standards. No more shady business. Rituals Essential for Women 18 and Over is a multivitamin you can actually trust. 
Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash A-A-W. Start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash A-A-W for 25% off. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Rocket Money. Did you know that nearly 75% of people have subscriptions that they've forgotten about? Embarrassingly, I am one of those as well. And Rocket Money can cancel a subscription for you that otherwise could have been a time-consuming process. Between streaming services, fitness apps, and delivery services, it can be never-ending. So Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions. They monitor your spending and help you lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash A-A-W. That's rocketmoney.com slash A-A-W. Rocketmoney.com slash A-A-W. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Quince. My closet has a tendency to get chaotic and crammed with a bunch of clothes that I don't really want to wear. What's been a game changer for me has been upgrading to high quality and affordable pieces from Quince. Now I have a wardrobe full of luxury and classic essentials and I stayed on budget. The best part is that Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands and they do this by partnering directly with top factories, cutting out the middleman and passing the savings on to us. In addition, Quince only works factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing and premium products and finishes. I personally am loving the linen pieces as it's Texas and summer is upon us. Indulge in affordable luxury. Go to quince.com A-A-W for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot A-A-W to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash A-A-W. So it was very scary starting this time not knowing anybody and the learning curve being so huge. And I didn't really know how to study. I compared myself to everybody all the time. Oh, you're doing flashcards. Oh, you have highlighters. Oh, you read the book. Oh, you write on the PowerPoint. Oh, you don't go to class. Oh, you do go to class. And it was really shocking to my system to not be the smartest person in the room and to have all these people so brilliant that they could just absorb the information that I had to work my tail off to learn. And it was a lot. I still loved it and I loved the human body and anatomy. So fascinating. But I am not joking. It was really hard. I had my lowest moment of medical school when my cousin, who was my same age and he lived outside of Houston, was in a house fire on my birthday of my first year. So that was January. And he was life flighted into UTMB because the burn center was so good. And I remember my parents calling and my aunt and uncle calling and not knowing what to do as up studying. And I drove to the hospital. It was pouring down rain because it's Galveston and it always rains and it rains sideways and terribly humid. And I was in, you know, workout shorts and a t-shirt and I ran up there soaking wet and opened the doors to the burn unit. And I could hear him screaming while getting his burns debrided. And I remember being up there with my aunt and uncle. And that moment really changed the trajectory of my medical course because 
he lived for about three more months and I would go up to the burn unit and study every day. So I really isolated myself from other people, which was hard, but I would go up there with my aunt and uncle. They lived with me for a while. Then they got an apartment and I would study in the waiting room. Then I'd go see him when I could. And I watched him progressively get better. And the day before he died, he was standing, he was awake, he had a trach and he could communicate and he went into surgery for contractures on his hands so he could get better use of his hands. And he died while on the operating room table. He went into heart failure from volume overload and then was resuscitated. I had actually stayed up all night cramming for a neuro exam. I remember it clearly because I was sleeping and got a phone call from my cousin, his older sister, who said, something's gone wrong. They won't tell mom what's happening. Can you go up there? And so I, again, ran up there looking for my aunt, found her in the same moment where they rolled him out of the OR back into the burn ICU. And he looked gray. I wasn't as experienced in medicine to know what I know now. I knew it wasn't normal, but you know that look if you're in medicine, somebody who's had all blood, not in a part of their body. And it was haunting. My aunt, she had coffee, she threw the coffee down, like passed out in the hallway after seeing her son roll by her like that. And we sat there in the room. They wouldn't let us go see him, waiting and waiting for the attending to come see us. And the residents came and they wouldn't look us in the eye and they were being very vague. And that was when I really learned very firsthand how important it is to communicate with your patients respectfully and in a way that they understand. They were trying to tell my aunt and uncle that he was brain dead from not having oxygen long enough, yet they were being so complicated that they weren't understanding it. I had to say, you're telling us that he's no longer with us. You got his heart back, but his brain has had too much damage, correct? Never should a family member have to clarify that. Medical people, that is your job. But we went and they pulled him off life support and we watched him die. And it was slow and excruciating and heartbreaking. And I left there really angry at his surgeon, his burn surgeon, who I felt like failed us in communication when he died. Not at the surgery. I know things can go wrong. We all knew that was a risk every time he walked into the OR. But I was so disappointed in how his surgeon handled it afterward that it really broke a piece of me. And I started thinking, if this is medicine, I don't know if I want a piece of it. If this is, you can do your best. Because I, I knew his surgeon was doing his best. I knew he was a good guy working so hard. And fight and fight and get so close to where you want to be and then lose the game. I didn't know if I could do it. So I had this moment where I wasn't sure. I started not doing great in class, and I just didn't know what the future would hold. And I had a meeting with a counselor because I was so distraught. I had stopped going to class. I didn't want to be in the hospital. And I essentially said, I don't know, maybe I just can't be here. This is too hard for me. And there had been a program that they had allowed students to go up to Austin because there was no medical school in Austin at the time for electives. And she told me the year you will be a third year student will be the first year that we are allowing people to go to Austin for their entire third and fourth year. And so maybe that would be a way for you to still continue, but not have to be here in the PTSD of this hospital. And that's usually a lottery based program, but 
she told me she'd let me go. And so that gave me hope again because Jason was in Austin and that would be a new environment. And it did. The moment I walked into Brack, which was the county hospital in Austin, I felt this wave of relief, that same relief. I'm back on track. This is the right thing for me. I was inspired by medicine again. And I loved clinical medicine. I'm not going to act like I did the best ever on my step one because I didn't. I did very average. I did much better on step two. I really loved every clinical field and had no idea what to go into. And I didn't have any mentors, especially no female mentors, nobody giving me any advice, minus my friends. And I would sit there in Starbucks and I've talked about this and we would say, what should we go into? Will we be able to have a family? Will we be able to become a mom? What will that look like? And the female physicians I did see all gave the same advice. Pick a lifestyle-friendly field because medicine is too hard. And even though I loved OBGYN, I did. I ruled it out because I wanted to be a mom. And I loved that emergency medicine physician who I worked with who started the free clinic. And I really liked my ER rotation. I loved the complexity of diagnosing problems. So I decided, well, ER is shift work. And he was a mentor of mine in undergrad. So maybe that'll be a good fit for me. And I matched into emergency medicine and went to my top choice at Parkland, which was amazing. Jason and I got married in medical school. And so we moved to Dallas. My parents were in Dallas at the time. I told you, I told you they move around a lot. And my grandparents, so Manga and Gaga, my grandparents lived in Dallas and we bought a house in their neighborhood and it was great. I loved living there. I did not love emergency medicine. And that was the second biggest time where I was, oh my gosh, did I make a mistake? That was how I felt. I knew something was wrong. And everybody who I told just simplified it to being intern your blues, the learning curve. It's hard to work these hours. You miss Jason. Nope, that's not it. One of my best friends from medical school is the chair of psychiatry at Texas Tech. So she's really badass. And she actually matched into surgery. So it's ironic that we both left our primary field. So she left surgery to go to psychiatry. And around the same time that I was feeling like ER wasn't for me, she was having the same feelings about surgery. So she was the first person, of course, she's a phenomenal psychiatrist, so the perfect person to talk to, who said, maybe it's the wrong field for you. Maybe these things you're complaining about, not feeling satisfied, wondering what happened to the patients, feeling emotionally exhausted by your shifts. Maybe it's because that's not the right thing for you. And that was the first time somebody didn't oversimplify my problem and just say, no, no, it's intern your blues. Oh, you'll be fine. Just stick it out and said, maybe you're right. Maybe this is the wrong field. And having that validation from a friend is so important. So life lesson, if you are going to let somebody talk to you, do not try to simplify their problems or solve them for them. Validate them, listen to what they're saying and try to be that voice of reason because that's what Sarah was for me. And that was huge. I went to my program director in ER and said, I need to leave. This is not the right field for me. And he said, are you sure? What can we do? You're a great resident. And I said, I don't know. And I don't know what I want to go into. I just know that I'm missing something that is intangible at the moment. I don't know what it is. And he was really, really inspiring to me in how you treat somebody. What I was telling him was hurting him. That's not good for his program. But instead of making me feel bad or guilty at all for a moment, he said, okay, well, this is really important and this is your life and you need to love it. So if you will stay for this year, so I don't have to have open shifts filled by your coworkers, 
I will help you find the right spot for you and I'll write you the best letter and we will find where you're supposed to be. He made that conversation all about me and not about him. And that is really, really how you lead. I was able to change my schedule some. So I did some more elective months first to try to explore what would be the right fit. And when I went to OBGYN, it was immediately where I was supposed to be. We had an OBGYN rotation at Parkland. There was a GYN emergency room. And I really love taking care of women. And then he let me do an OB rotation. And I loved being on the labor floor. Suddenly I saw how you could help somebody for an entirety of a problem, not just a shift. You could help them with their problem that was possible in OBGYN, and I wanted a piece of that. So I learned at that moment that continuity to me wasn't really about having to follow somebody for the course of their life, which is what in medical school I always thought continuity was, but more helping somebody for a problem. And so I finished my ER year, and then I matched into OBGYN, and I stayed at Parkland, And I started over. I started intern year over. We had approximately 100 talks about this with the new program director. But the take home message was that I did not want to be in the position of being behind. I didn't want to be surgically behind because ER is not a surgical field, even though it's a procedural field. So I wanted to start over so I could be a great surgeon. And I I loved it. That was definitely the right choice. It gave me a completely different perspective. I had more experience. And I then was able to come in to residency knowing I want to do a fellowship. So friends, this is crazy. I went from a three-year residency in my brain thinking I'd be done with ER in three years to doing a year of emergency medicine, four years of OBGYN, and then three years of REI. So I extended my training significantly. And what I tell everybody is the time will pass anyway. And if I had not made that choice to go from three to eight years, I probably wouldn't be working right now. I would a thousand percent not have the job satisfaction and I would never have this community that I'm able to have and enjoy that brings me so much joy every day. And it will never be worth leaving your kids at home to go to a job that does not matter as much to you that you're not passionate about. So if the timing takes longer to get there, so be it. It'll make you better in the end. I came in Knowing I want to do a fellowship, I really thought it would be between MFM, maternal fetal medicine, which is high-risk OB, and REI, reproductive endocrine and infertility. I had zero experience with REI. Parkland's an MFM powerhouse. So I was kind of leaning on that angle. But the program director who had helped me come into the field said, it's easier to get into MFM. I don't really know if that's true or not, but he said REI is markedly hard. And you should have exposure in that field because it'll look favorably no matter what. So you should do some research. And I'm going to introduce you to somebody named Lisa Halverson. She was a rock star in REI. I mean, she is a rock star in REI. She works at the NIH now. She was at Parkland at the time with a lab. And I had no idea that she was as big a deal as she was. But she took me under her wing and I did years worth of pituitary research in her lab with the same common theme as when I was a undergrad working in that free clinic. I showed up and I made time for it. And there were times I did not love it. I don't love pipetting cells. I cried when they died. I remember pulling them out of the incubator and there was one day my cells hadn't survived. I must have mixed their media wrong or something. And I cried. I cried about cells. I could run emergency surgeries and codes and do all these crazy things, but I cried about the pituitary cells. 
but I showed up anyway. And I was able to then write a paper, write posters, go to ASRM. I remember walking into ASRM for the first time. It's huge. It's our National Society for REI, the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. I had no idea what medical conferences were about. They sounded kind of fuddy-duddy. But I walked in and I saw glamorous women in the field presenting these amazing scientific papers. And everybody was so nice and so smart and so cool. And I remember feeling, I want in the club. This is my club. How do I get in? And I left that meeting so inspired to work my tail off. I took any research project that came to me. I didn't sleep as much as I should have. I studied hard for CREOGS, but I felt so drawn to REI. And I was so scared to say it out loud because there are about 40-ish spots a year. And there can be a lot of applicants. There were a lot of applicants my year. And I didn't know. I honestly did not know if I would get a spot. But I took every opportunity to go and interview. And that is an amazing opportunity to meet people in a field. And Lisa Halverson, that mentor, had written me such a great letter that it was read to me in almost every interview. Somebody quoted her about my dedication, about how I showed up, how she knew I would not be a basic science researcher, but she knew I would be important in the field. And that type of mentorship is so valuable. That type of leadership really changes your perspective of not only your future, but yourself. So I've owed a lot to her along the way. And anytime I see her at ASRM, we usually like huddle up in the corner and I probably cry and talk about my future and all the changes I've been making. But she's always been such a supporter of mine. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Caraway. Spring is coming and I always love a good home reset. Non-toxic cookware is the perfect way for you to kick off your own spring cleaning. With so many collections to explore, there is a caraway for every cook. Their internet-famous kitchenware is a staple for any home. It comes with beautiful shades to fit your aesthetic, but most importantly, you're ditching the chemicals. Caraway's non-toxic kitchenware comes a chemical-free ceramic coating so your food can be prepared without any of those hard-to-pronounce chemicals leaching in to your healthy ingredients. Everybody knows that I am a big believer that our environment impacts our body, and that's why I trust Caraway with my cooking. Visit carawayhome.com A-A-W to take advantage of this limited-time offer for 10% off your next purchase. This deal is exclusive for our listeners, so visit carawayhome.com A-A-W or use the code A-A-W at checkout. Caraway non-toxic cookware made modern. Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown with three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown. You get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at Wilmington and beaches I went to UNC, so Chapel Hill, Jason and I were thrilled to move out there and start our family. Of course, along the way, we had many miscarriages and ectopic pregnancy. If you guys do not know that, I talk about it in lots of places. But I was really fearful that I would be that fertility doctor who had infertility so bad that she never had her own kids, and I would be resentful of my patients. 
Obviously, I have two kids now. They are five and six. They were both born during my fellowship years. It was a very trying period of time for us, but I would never have it any other way. Two women who really inspired me a lot in my fellowship. One was my senior fellow, Emily Evans Hoker. She practices at Virginia Tech. And the other is Ann Steiner, who now is division director at Duke. And Ann was fabulous in her own right. She's an amazing researcher and she really sparked me to love clinical research. And I did all of my fellowship research with her and she really opened my eyes about how important it is to be evidence-based. And I, I knew that term, but I didn't understand science the way that I do now. And I owe all of that to her. I, however, went against both of their advice when I took my first job out of fellowship because Jason and I wanted to be in Austin. Probably part of this was me not communicating really well because this is his hometown. And I told him that if we left, I would always try to get back, even though it might be hard because there are not very many fertility practices. When I left here, there was one or two, but I really wanted to bring him back to his hometown and be close to his parents if we could. So we'd been in Dallas and then Chapel Hill. And I interviewed at multiple places, but I did get an offer at a practice, which was the first practice I joined. And it sounded really great that I would have a lot of autonomy, be able to become a partner, be able to have this great work-life balance. And they were both skeptical and I probably should have listened to them more, but I had my blinders on at that moment because I just wanted to be in a location, which in the long run, here we are. So I guess it has worked out, but I do wish I had taken more of their advice and questioned more things or asked more specific questions or negotiated that contract better because I didn't know any better. But I went to that practice and I was working my butt off. And honestly, it's really hard to know what is the difference in this is what it's like to build your own practice and try to meet the referring doctors and take great care of your patients, or this is what it's like everywhere, especially when you come out of training because you have nothing to compare it to. And nobody in training prepares you to be outside of training, to be honest. It prepares you for a life in academics, and that's about it. So I really didn't know what private practice was all about. I had no idea. And so I worked and worked and worked and eventually realized that I was missing my kids and my family, and I didn't have time for things that also I was passionate about because that job consumed my entire life. And that's when I really learned that medicine doesn't love you back. You can love, love your job and you should, but it is not going to be enough for you. You have other things that make you who you are and you need to be at a place that allows you to have time for those things and those people. Leaving that job was tough. There's always, you know, non-competes and non-solicits and all kinds of words and contracts that make it really hard for somebody to go to a job and then leave it. And that's just the legality of private practice. I was able to go to a corporate-based practice, and a bunch of people asked why I left there. And I had an idea that would not be my long-term stop, but it was an ability to have a better work-life balance, to have more support in places where I needed it to from the practice, and also take care of all my current patients. I had a lot of guilt about leaving people, and so I wanted to have a mechanism to still take care of them. And that is why I went from the first to the second practice. I don't think anybody who's listening to this is surprised that I really wanted to be one of the people in control and have much more of a say so in my practice. And when I left the first practice, there were people in my life who were so inspiring, like Rupa Wong and Pamela Mehta and Jamie Rutland, who were saying, you should start your own practice. And that was just not on my radar. And I think honestly, it was because I was coming from such a low place. I was 
tired and I miss my kids and my family and I didn't want to do something that would pull me away from them even more. And so I didn't have, I don't know, maybe the confidence that it was going to give me what I needed. So I didn't make that move. When Skillern and I, so my current partner, decided to leave Aspire, I was 100% ready. At that point, I knew that I could make the job work for me, that this type of crazy work and never see your family lifestyle was not the only path in medicine. And I believe that I could have both. And so when she and I decided that we were going to open Fora, I had full confidence that I had to learn new skills and it was going to be more work, but it would be work during work time. And I have more time with my kids now than I ever have. And I am more satisfied with my job than ever, ever, ever. And I tell you this because never, zero times when I was in fellowship, did anybody ever say, you should open your own practice? Or have you thought about that? That option was not even presented. It wasn't even on the table for me. And I just think that is because Fellowships and residencies are great and wonderful, but they really prepare you to stay in that academic world. It was academics or join a big private practice. I felt like I was going off the beaten bush joining just a one physician practice. But the idea that I could create what I wanted to have in medicine, what I would have wanted as a patient, that was not even on the table. Nothing prepared me to think that I could do it. And I am here to tell all of you, you can and you should. You should be changing the face of medicine. You should be the one calling the shots on the things that impact your patients. You should be the one who gets to say how it's going to be done. You should be the one who eventually gets to profit from it. You should be the one setting your own schedule and having time with your family when you want it and creating what medicine should be. And of course, you do not have to do those things if they are not the things that set your soul on fire. But in case nobody has told you that you can, I'm sitting here telling you that you can. I started my Instagram account at the end of fellowship. So that was 2016, purely on the suggestion of my youngest sister, Meg, who said that she would like to know more about her body and nobody was talking about this on social media and maybe it would be a good place. As you all know, I started talking about fertility awareness and education and my life in medicine, and it has grown immensely. That has not always been supported by my field. I will say it is now. I mean, now you guys, I am president of the special interest group for social media for ASRM. That's just showing you how far we've come from practicing physicians saying that I'm narcissistic for having an Instagram account and that it's not appropriate to be so unhumble to now be at a place where you can say, oh, look, this is a special interest group about social media. So what a far jump we've had in these five years. And I truly believe it has resonated because I don't hold things back. I'm giving facts and I'm sharing real life things, good and bad. But I started to get frustrated that Instagram has an algorithm and I can't control what people see. And if you're looking for PCOS information, you may not see my posts on PCOS. And maybe there would be a way to make my content more evergreen, to make it live on besides the 24 hours that the Instagram algorithm gave it. And that led to the podcast. I did not start the podcast until I was leaving the first job, and there were a lot of logistical reasons why, but I needed to make sure that I had a contract negotiated that protected all my intellectual property. So I do have an episode on that, and if you create things, you need to protect your things. So the podcast has been out for two years. I still record it in my closet, and I edit it myself, so if it sounds terrible, you can blame me. It's my fault, but I really have loved how it has changed my practice 
and changed how I communicate with patients because it is very special to have somebody give you the time of listening. Time is your most valuable commodity after all. I was never prepared for what a community I would get. I was prepared for what I would give to social media and the podcast and the YouTube. I was not prepared for what I would get back, that I would be able to network with people in my field, have a community with people, get immense support for the things that I'm doing. It blows my mind. Even how you guys have come and supported Fora. Those of you who aren't even in Austin, you will follow us on our Instagram and you'll love Skillern's Fertility Fridays because she is not a social media person. And that was our agreement that she would take one day so people could get to see her on the gram. And she does not hold back. She shows exactly who she is and it's amazing. But that support from all of you all over the place, it is so special. And thank you so much for giving that to me. The podcast is going to include more guest interviews this year. So I've already, I'm a type A planner. You guys don't mess with an Enneagram one. I already have the entire year planned out. So all of 2021, you know it, there's a spreadsheet. Every episode is planned and I'm really thrilled to bring you more guests so you can hear others talk about their levels of expertise and their stories and what brought them to medicine and the topics that they are really passionate about. So a lot of guests, especially other fertility physicians throughout the country. I'm working hard to keep building the YouTube channel because I do think there's topics where visual really helps us. And I hope that if you haven't subscribed and checked it out, that would be a huge Valentine's gift to me. Okay, in our last minutes, we are going to rapid fire some questions. So some of you sent in questions on Instagram. They are random. Here we go. Do you like cats? Yes, but my husband is allergic. What's on your bucket list? To go to Greece with the family. How do you plan or organize for yourself? I use Google Calendar like there's no tomorrow. I have like 20 different calendars and everything goes on there. I was not always an electronic organizer, but it helps me. And then daily, I have a plain notebook, a moleskin notebook. Each day gets a page. I open my patients who are on there, my to-do list, and that is how I organize each day. What are strategies to negotiate your salary? Your time is your most valuable commodity, so negotiate your time first. Get more vacation fewer days per week. Work four days per week, my friends. There's no reason why you can't. You just have to ask for it. Find out in non-negotiables for you and say what they are. When I negotiated my second contract, I said X is my salary. I'm working four days a week and I have my intellectual property. If we can't agree on these three things, I'm not going to be a good fit here. Boom. That was how I said it. Those were agreed on and then we negotiated fine-tuned points. What do you love about Austin? I love the food. I love that the Keep Austin Weird really supports small businesses. I love the big oak trees. I love the people who are here, and it's a very liberal city. What has been your biggest challenge as a mom? Guilt. Tons of mom guilt and letting others help me, feeling like I have to do it all. But I have a really good tribe who I've allowed to help me pick up balloons for the party, get the cupcakes, make the cookies, and allowing other people in has really helped me a lot. Favorite song. My favorite song is Carried Away by George Strait. Why is OBGYN considered malignant for residency programs? Any field where somebody's life is on the line every single day is typically malignant because the error for margin is small. That is hands down the answer. Surgery, neurosurgery, OBGYN. If people are dying, there is low tolerance for mistakes and people are hard on you so that you can be on your game. To me, that made me a better doctor. 
I'm struggling with being a perfectionist and insecure about it. These things go hand in hand together and I've talked about it in other episodes, but I really think you have to just say what it is. This is holding me back because I'm trying to do it perfect. And at some point I have to accept just doing it is better than doing nothing and trying to acknowledge those. Personally, journaling has helped me a lot because I'm able to actually verbalize what is holding me back. Practicing with your husband's name, that was a no-brainer because we got married in medical school, so I wasn't yet practicing with my own name. I may not have switched it over, but also I liked his name. My maiden name was Minns, which is hard for some people to say, and Crawford was very simple. So I also really wanted my daughter, if I had a daughter, to grow up with her mom with the same name as her. Like, how cool to see Dr. Crawford, and that's your mother. That was important to me. Advice for having babies during residency, just do it. Just when you're ready to do it, do it. And don't underestimate the people who care about you who are in your program. They will step up if you let them. How did you pick out your kids' names? Campbell, I really wanted to be a very androgynous name. Campbell Crawford on a resume, that could go either way. And so that was very important for me. My mom actually suggested the name and I loved it. Turns out she suggested it because my husband had a signed picture of Earl Campbell, famous Texas football player. But regardless, I loved the alliteration and the androgyny of it. And my husband loved it, I think, because of a football player. But we picked it. Rhett, I always wanted and just didn't even negotiate. I entertained other ideas, but he's my gone with the wind baby. And I just have always loved the name Rhett. And the last question is if I experienced the dumb blonde stereotype. And the answer is yes, I have. It was really hard for me at times, and I would find myself shrinking myself into the corner to try and not stand out. And now I know, and I have more confidence in the fact, that my knowledge is stands for itself. I'm a good physician. I am good at communicating. I'm going to take good care of you. And I can do that while having curled hair and wearing heels and a sheath dress and lipstick, pre-COVID, of course, just the same as I could if I looked like a troll or had my hair all messy and wore no makeup and wore baggy scrubs all the time. I'm not saying you have to dress up and be glamorous. You can certainly do whatever makes you feel the best. But the turning point for me is that I believed in myself more when I present myself a certain way. And so if you're going to think I'm dumb because I'm blonde, either way, I'm going to show you that I'm not. And how I do that the best is walking in the room confidently and how I dress helps me feel better. So I curl my hair for me and I get my nails painted for me because that helps me have the confidence to break that stereotype like there's no tomorrow. So whatever it is that makes you feel confident and proud and successful, embrace that persona, regardless of what people are going to say, because people are going to say things anyway. Okay, this is a really long episode. I thought it'd be 20 minutes, and here we are at 40. If you've made it this far, I love you to pieces. As always, thank you. You can always follow along on Instagram at Natalie Crawford ND. Check out the YouTube channel. Lots of love. Happy Valentine's. Mm-hmm.